As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. Help us to meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. Then we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. (coughs) And please turn with me in God's word, Psalm 146. Psalm 146. If you're looking with the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on many of the Pew Bibles on page 666. Don't worry, it'll be okay. Um, It's on many of the Pew Bibles there. Uh, The book of Psalms is between the book of Job and Proverbs. And we want to think about Psalm 146, and I thought it would be a fitting psalm for us to consider here at the end of the year, um, to think about our help and our hope for the new year in our God. So Psalm 146 will be our text. We'll read the whole thing together. So Psalm 146, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day. His plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, We're thinking about endings today. Um, This will be a day when people reflect on the year that's come, even noticed in the news this morning. That was the theme of the news, reflecting on the year that's been and anticipating the year to come. Um, And this is the end of the Psalter. This is the first of the last five psalms in the book of Psalms uh, that really all stand out together as the conclusion of the book, and they stand out together by beginning and ending the same way. Maybe you notice that in the psalm, that it begins and ends in the same way. Praise the Lord, verse 1, and at the end of verse 10, praise the Lord. That brackets the whole psalm. And in Hebrew, that's just hallelujah. Uh, these are psalms that all begin and end with hallelujah. Um, and I thought, what better way for us to end the year together than to end with these psalms that end the Psalter and to end with that word on our lips, hallelujah, uh, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Um, that is the, the hope of God's people. And, and sometimes meditating on the days that have come and the days that have been can be a kind of sobering reflection. That's certainly true of Psalm 90, 
right? As we sang it, maybe you noticed how, how sobering it is to think about numbering our days, to think about what the end of things means from the perspective of God's justice, that the consequences of sin and the misery that sin has brought into the world has made life the way it is, has limited life, has made life difficult. Um, that really is the consequence of sin. Uh, to really meditate on that and to face that is a sobering thought. Um, and so that's one way to face those realities. But when we face them with God, as Moses gets to at the end of Psalm 90, and as this psalm certainly directs us, when we face these things with God, there's great reason for hope, there's great reason for praise, and I wanted to think about that as we enter this new year, to think about how particularly a hallelujah should stand on the mouths of God's people. And this psalm really calls us to praise God as our faithful Savior um, and says wonderful things about who God is and who God is for his people. And the psalm really calls God's people to praise because our God is in the first place a powerful creator. In the second place, he's a gracious sustainer. And in the third place, he's our eternal ruler. And that's how we want to think about this psalm together, our powerful creator, our gracious sustainer, and our eternal ruler. Uh, That's where the psalm wants to point us. It's interesting that after making this call to praise, lifting up this hallelujah, uh, sharing his own personal resolution to praise God, uh, the psalmist immediately tells us where we should not put our trust. Um, and And he basically says, you should not put your trust in things that are powerless to save. Um, It's the first thing that he does for us in this psalm. After calling God's people to praise, he tells us, don't put your trust in people who are powerless to save. Um, It's translated here, princes. It might be nobles, might be another way to take it. If we were to translate it in a modern sense, we would say the powerful or the influential. The psalmist is warning against putting trust in those kinds of people. Um, And those kinds of people can be inviting for us to put our trust in uh, because their backing seems solid and practical. Um, That's what one commentator said. He said, there are sometimes we we act as if there are people in the world that are more solid, um, more practical to to back us than, than God can be. Now, maybe we recoil at that kind of statement and say, oh, surely not us, though. We don't do that. Maybe other people do that, but we're not tempted to do that. Uh, But maybe we could do a simple test for ourselves. Uh, How much time do we spend watching and listening and reading about politics as opposed to the amount of time we spend reading God's word and meditating on it and in prayer before him for our nation? Uh, Maybe those kinds of things reveal to us maybe where we do think the backing is more solid or more practical for the help of God's people. And the psalmist is really coming to us and saying, don't be deceived. Thinking that the powerful and the influential of this world are the people that you should put your trust in. That they're really more solid. Uh, they're really more practical to back. Um, the psalmist says, don't do that. Um, because even though they might be, as one person put it, furnished with power, with money, with troops of men, with other resources, at the end of the day, the psalmist reminds us that the best of men are men at best. And what is the problem with putting your trust even in the powerful and the influential of this world? It's that they don't last. 
Right? That's how it's put in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Um, in Hebrew, the word man is Adam. Don't put your trust in a son of Adam in whom there is no salvation. And I bring that up not just to give you a useless Hebrew lesson or to show you that I've done my homework. Um, it's because if that, that name comes out to us in the psalm, it affects how we read the next line. Don't put your trust in a son of Adam, because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Do you remember that announcement of the curse that was made to Adam? That his work would be cursed? Remember what God said to him in Genesis 3.19? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, you shall return to the ground. Isn't that what verse 4 says about the man of dust? When his breath departs, he returns to the ground. And on that very day, his plans perish. It's a play on words in Hebrew because the ground is Adama. So a son of Adam returns to the Adama, the ground out of which he was taken. Um, and that's why the psalmist says they're poor trusts. Right? We're, we're reminded of that. It's a sobering reminder every time we commit the body of a loved one to the grave, every time we're called to say those, those profound words, that they are ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It's a reminder that dust we are, and to dust we return. And the day that the powerful and influential go out of this world, that day their plans perish. You notice that? I mean, those words are probably so familiar to us that maybe we don't get struck by that. But when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. That's why mere human beings are not good hopes for real help for real salvation, because they don't last. And my point is not that political leaders and powerful leaders and influential leaders are not important, or that somehow politics is a complete and utter waste of time, but what is the message of the psalmist here? They are no real help. They can't save. And so don't trust them to do things that they cannot do. In them there is no salvation. As one person put it, they may have power and money and armies and all other resources, but those who depend on man put their trust in fleeting breath. It is wrong to put our trust in frail mortal man and vain to seek safety where it cannot be found. Whatever influence they have, whatever power they have, they cannot offer salvation. They cannot offer the real help that we need. And so the psalmist is telling us all, don't put your trust in people that are powerless to save when you have a God who is powerful to save. You don't need to put your trust in other places because you have one that you should put your trust in, who is the God who is powerful to save, in whom there is real help to be found because in him is real power 
God has all the power that is needed to help his people. Don't put your trust in those who are powerless to save. Find your happiness in putting your trust in the one who is powerful to save. That's where verses 5 and 6 direct us. Blessed or happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. What is the psalmist reminding us of? Reminding us of where the real power is. Whenever the the Bible wants to lift up our minds to the great power that God has, it reminds us that he is the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He made all of that. And how did he do it? By the power of his word commanding it to be, and it was. He spoke to the nothingness, and it obeyed him, and became everything. Right From the smallest subatomic particle to the largest astronomical body, largest star, largest galaxy in the universe, God made them all by his power. Um, God made all of that. He is powerful for his people. That's why we begin our service the same way all the time, by reminding ourselves that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. It's a declaration of our dependence on God. We have no help in ourselves. We look for all our help to him, and he's powerful to help because he is our all-powerful creator. And not only is God powerful and able to help, but the wonderful testimony here is that he is willing to help. He is our ever-reliable covenant Lord. Uh, The name of the covenant God, Yahweh, jumps off the page of this psalm. It's used 11 times in a 10-verse psalm. It's continuing to remind us of who God is and what is essential to know about our covenant God. He keeps faith forever. His ability to help and his willingness to help never go away. He keeps faith forever. He's not like powerful and influential people who when they die, their plans perish with them. His plans never perish. Because he endures forever. He keeps faithfulness forever. There's no limit to his power. There's no limit to his plans. Whereas even the best of men can only keep faith while they live, our God keeps faith forever. This is the God we serve. That's why the psalmist says, how happy are a people whose help is in this God whose hope is in this God, who is all-powerful and ever-reliable. He is the help and the hope of his people. And what the psalmist saw plainly by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see even more clearly in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see in him even more clearly who this God is, who is all-powerful to help and ever-reliable to help his people. That's why the the New Testament wants to remind us that Jesus is the one through whom the heavens and the earth were made, right? When John celebrates who Jesus is in the first chapter of his gospel, he says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the one through whom 
the heavens and the earth were made. Um, Hebrews also, in Hebrews chapter 1, talks about Jesus in this way, that he was the one through whom God created the world, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus has all the power necessary to help and to save his people. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who keeps faith forever. That's also the wonderful testimony of the New Testament. Who is Christ for his people? He is the helper who will never fail us. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 says, I will never, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then a couple of verses later, it encourages us to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's our helper forever. He's our hope forever. That's who our Lord Jesus Christ is. That's been the testimony of his people throughout the ages. We can think of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, talking about how the Lord was faithful to him when no one else was faithful to him. That's a very sad statement that Paul makes in 2 Timothy 4, 16, when he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But who stood by him? He said, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When no one else stood by me, Christ stood by me. And because he stands by me always, I can have every confidence that he will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's who the Lord Jesus Christ is for his people. He is that powerful creator God come in the flesh who is all-powerful and ever-reliable to be the help and the hope of his people. And that's what the rest of the psalm then tells us. How does God, how does God do this? Right? If the first part of the psalm is the fact that God keeps faith forever as our all-powerful God, verses 7 through 9 wonderfully tell us how he keeps faith forever, what he does for his people, how he is our gracious sustainer. Uh, God graciously helps his people, body and soul, in all the ways that are described in verses 7 through 9, all the ways that God's people need him. Um, he is for his people by his grace. And he is against their enemies by his justice. That's the great testimony of verses 7 through 9. He is for his people by his grace. And he meets every earthly need that his people have. And there's just this wonderful litany of the things that God does for his people in verses 7 through 9. Each one of those would be worthy of a sermon unto themselves. I'm not going to try to do that this morning. But it would be worth doing. To make a sermon on every single one of these ways that God is the provider his people need. Because what earthly needs does the psalm celebrate that God meets for his people? He graciously provides for us. He feeds the hungry. He frees the captives. He opens the eyes of the blind. 
He unburdens the backs of those who are weighed down. God is the gracious provider for his people. He graciously loves his people. The Lord loves the righteous, who are only righteous by his spirit and grace. He provides for us. He loves us. He watches over us. Right? He particularly watches over and cares for those in the world of the psalmist who had no one else to look out for them or care for them. The particularly vulnerable. The particularly alone in the world. Sojourners. Widows. Orphans. The Lord comes to the aid of those who had no one else to come to their aid in the world. And if God were the kind of God who just did that for the physical things that we need, for the earthly needs we have, he would be a God worthy of the kind of praise the psalmist calls us to in this psalm. But of course, in all of those things, we see more than just earthly needs. Because we recognize in all of those things that verses 7 through 9 speak of, those are also spiritual needs that God's people have. We can read them one way and think about how God provides for this life, but we can think also of how he provides for our spiritual lives. That he gives the bread of life to hungry souls. That he frees those who are captive to sin by the blood of his son offered on the cross. That he enlightens blind eyes to see the glory of who he is and brings light to our darkness when we don't know the way forward who lifts from us the burden of our sins and miseries from our backs that are bowed down by them, who graciously loves us because by faith he's imputed to us the righteousness of his Son. So he loves us as those he sees who are like Jesus, as if they had never sinned or been sinners, and as if they'd been as perfectly obedient as he was obedient for us. He graciously loves us, And he comes to the care of those who are sojourners. Because that's who all of us are in this world. We are citizens of another country. A heavenly one. And we are sojourners. We are strangers and exiles here. And how important it is to remember that God comes to the care, comes to the aid of sojourners. Comes to the aid of orphans and widows those who have left and who have lost family for the sake of following Jesus Christ, who have made Christ's family their family and have lost their earthly families as a result. The Lord comes to the aid of those as well. God's grace is for his people. He is the gracious sustainer of us, body and soul, in every way that we need to be sustained. His grace is for us, and his justice is against our enemies. But all these wonderful things that God says he does are bracketed by his justice. Uh, Verses 7 through 9, all of those wonderful things are bracketed on either end by what God's justice does. In verse 7, he executes justice for the oppressed. At the end of verse 9, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. That's also what we need in this world. We need justice for the oppressed. We need to know that there is someone who is on our side. And that's what God says he will do. Call wickedness in this world to account until he finds none of it. 
uh, who will bring the way of the wicked to ruin. That's the God we serve. That's the God who loves us. That's the God who is for us. And no wonder that we look at that list of the psalmist saying, this is who God is, and we see Jesus. Right? One commentator looked at this list and simply said, like father, like son. Right? All these things that are said about God, you could just as easily say, this is who Jesus was in the world. This is a perfect description of who Jesus was in the world and who Jesus continues to be at his father's right hand. This is reminiscent of all the things that were said in Isaiah 61 about who the Messiah would be. And we can remember that incident in our our Lord's earthly life when he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he was handed the scroll in Luke 4 to read in the synagogue. And he he opened the scroll and he turned to Isaiah 61 and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus read that, and Luke tells us, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is that God. That's what he's come to do in the flesh, to do all of those things that his people need. Um, He does these things for us physically and spiritually by his grace. And he still promises to be the savior of all who seek him um, and the just judge of all those who refuse him and persecute his people. When you hear that this is who God is, There's no reason not to come to him. There's no reason not to seek him as your help and as your hope. And that's why it's such a serious thing to refuse him. Even some of the most sublime messages of the salvation of God come with sober warnings. We can think of John 3.16 as an example. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Um, To turn away from this God, to not want this God as your help and hope, you stand condemned already. Because... The psalmist recognizes there's no happiness that can be found apart from this God who does these things. That's why he says what he does in verse 5 with all of its glory. Blessed is he, happy is he, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. This is a wonderful statement. It's the last beatitude in the Psalter. The last beatitude, the statements that begin, blessed or happy is the man. Happy is the person. Happy are those. Right? That's how the Psalter begins. Right? Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude, a statement of blessedness, where it says, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. That was the first beatitude of the Psalter. Here is the last. Blessed or happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. It's a wonderful thing that in this last beatitude, it's the God of Jacob who is named here. Jacob is brought to mind. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to my nephew who's in third grade, and he said he was studying Jacob in school. And I said, do you know what Jacob means? Thinking, you know, maybe I could teach him something. And he said, Jacob means heel grabber, which is a Hebrew idiom for deceiver. And I thought, I better get my notes and write this down. That's, that's a pretty good answer. Um, I guess I'm not teaching anyone anything today. Um, but that's who Jacob was, right? Every time we, we hear that name, we're not just to think of the patriarch. We're to think of the patriarch who needed a lot of help, right? Who came into this world as a heel grabber and as a deceiver and whose help and hope was in God. And he comes into the world needing God so much and going wrong in so many ways. And what did he find? God was faithful to him forever. And at the end of, the li- of his life, when he's pronouncing blessings on the people he's going to leave behind, who does he say God is? He says, he is the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Whenever God calls himself the God of Jacob, it's a wonderful reminder to us of, as one person put it, the man God befriended and transformed. Don't we all need God to be that for us? to befriend us and to transform us. And what hope that holds out to us, that what God did for Jacob, he can surely do for us, that he can surely do for all who put their hope and their trust in him, the gracious sustainer, who have this God as their help and their hope. And the final reason the psalmist calls on us to praise this God is because he is our eternal ruler, Verse 10 reminds us, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. There's never a generation of God's people that will live that will not have this God as their God. This God will rule forever. It was true for Jacob. It's true for this psalmist who lifts up this call to praise. It's true for every generation of God's people who've sung this psalm, that God has been their king, that God has reigned over them. And because God is king forever, and because God keeps faithfulness forever, praise should flow, fo- should flow forth from his people to him forever. Right? That's what the psalmist calls us to. Right After saying hallelujah in verse 1. He goes on to sort of state his own personal resolution to praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Um, There's a, a resolution worth making in the new year. I will sing praises to the Lord as long as I live. Um, That's his own personal resolution 
As long as I live, while I have my being, for my lifetime, I will praise the Lord. Perhaps this is the psalmist's acknowledgement of the fact that he too is a son of Adam. And that one day his breath will depart and he will return to the ground out of which he was taken. And he's resolving to praise the Lord for the rest of his life. And that's a wonderful statement. We find that kind of expression in other psalms. But I think that takes on a little different perspective and a deeper meaning in light of the truth that's been revealed in these last days about who the God of Jacob is and who is the king who reigns forever, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it takes on a different tone then for us for how long will we have our being if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that this life is not everything. Um, That we are going on from this life to another kind of life. Jacob knew that. You might remember that scene where he comes to meet Pharaoh and the Egyptians who were so obsessed with eternal life and people who live long see this man who's had a long life. And he says to him, how many are the days of your life? Um, It's a nice way of saying, just how old are you? How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob responded, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Pharaoh asks him, how long have you lived? He says, this is how long I've been sojourning. I've been a sojourner for 130 years. Jacob understood that his whole life had been lived that way. And why did he speak that way? Well, I don't have to come up with the answer, and you don't have to come up with the answer because the Holy Spirit's given it to us in Hebrews 11. Why do people speak this way? Hebrews 11:13-16 said, "These all died in faith, not having received the things promised." But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, sojourners on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them city. Um, What Jacob was saying is, I've not yet come home. I'm a sojourner here. I'm looking for a homeland. I expect one from God. Um, So when we think about praising God while we have our being, we're not just thinking about this life. We're thinking about the life to come. Because we go from this mortal life as God's people to the immortal life of heaven, where we will continue to praise our God, because our King who reigns forever is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in Him will never die, and though they die, yet will they live, because He is King forever, and He keeps faith with His people forever. All who believe in him and have life in his name will be able to sing his praise while they have their being forever. And it's interesting that it's this song, this hallelujah, that God's people take up in glory. 
when John hears the voice of the church praising the Lord in glory in Revelation 19.6, what does the church sing? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And when John heard it, he heard a voice that this psalmist never heard because it was a voice like a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder lifting up the hallelujah, the whole church of God, singing praise the Lord. We're not there yet. We're still sojourning. Uh, But here at the end of 2023, as sojourners who don't know what the new year holds for any of us, we have to greet it with the confidence of who our God is. Right? We might have our greatest year ahead of us coming that we don't know in 2024. It might be a wonderful year, a year of blessings and happiness that we couldn't have anticipated or imagined when the year began. Uh, We may be beginning, as we prayed in the congregational prayer, the last year of our lives without knowing it, or be anticipating a year that's filled with incredible difficulty and sorrow. We don't know what the year holds, but we know for certain that happy are those whose help and hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that for sure, that the Lord God keeps faith forever, that the Lord God is our king forever, and that nothing that comes to us in this year will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let us end this this old year and begin the new year just as this psalm begins and ends with that one simple word, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.